2: Also media.
3: Hello, everyone. It's me, James, and I'm joining you today for another a long series of the little recordings where I ask you to give us your money. Uh, once again, I'm asking you to support the mutual aid work being done at the border. Um, I'm recording this in November, and this week we have terrible weather forecasts that will make conditions in Hakumba extremely dangerous for people who are detained out there by the Department of Homeland Security it will mean that it's no exaggeration to say that people's lives will be at risk and that the important mutual aid work that is already being done will only become more important as we get rain, we get snow and we get cold temperatures and people continue to be detained without shelter, food, water or uh, adequate clothing. If you would like to support those efforts, you can find the way to do so at linktree Slash border kindness. Uh, there's a dot before the ee, so it's l i n k t r dot e e slash border kindness. I'll also post a link on my Twitter if you'd like to find it there. Thank you.
4: Hello, everybody. Welcome to it could happen here. This is Shireen. I'm back to talk about Palestine because it's important. But when it comes to the history of the creation of Israel and the subsequent ethnic cleansing and mass expulsion of the Palestinian people, I feel like there's a part of history that often gets overlooked. People usually say Israel was created in 1948, but the intent to create it actually started decades before that. We're going to be talking about the Balfour Declaration, which resulted in a significant upheaval in the lives of Palestinians and was issued over a century ago on November 2nd, 1917. The declaration turned the Zionist aim of establishing a Jewish state in Palestine into a reality. The pledge is generally viewed as one of the main catalysts of the Nakba, the ethnic cleansing of Palestine in 1948, and the conflict that ensued with the Zionist state of Israel. The Balfour Declaration is regarded as one of the most controversial and contested documents in the modern history of the Arab world. So what is it? The Balfour Declaration, it means or is translated to Balfour's promise in Arabic, it was a public pledge by Britain in 1917 declaring its aim to, quote, establish a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine. The declaration came in the form of a letter from Britain's then foreign secretary, Arthur Balfour, addressed to Lionel Walter Rothschild, a figurehead of the British Jewish community at the time. The declaration was made during World War I, which was just a reminder from 1914 to 1918, and this declaration was included in the terms of the British mandate for Palestine after the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire. So on November 2nd, 1917, the Balfour Declaration became the basis for the movement to create a Jewish state in Palestine. A week later, the declaration was published in the Times of London for all the public to see. The content of the letter is rather short, so I'm just going to read some of it right now. It goes, Dear Lord Rothschild, I have much pleasure in conveying to you on behalf of His Majesty's government the following declaration of sympathy with the Jewish Zionist aspirations, which has been submitted to and approved by the cabinet. His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. Keep in mind, at this time, the British had no control over Palestine. It was still under the Ottoman Empire, but in this letter, Britain was essentially preparing to take it over in the very near future. I also want to include that at this time, Jewish people only made up 6% of the Palestinian population. I'm going to play audio from a video posted by former guest of the show, the amazing Sim Kern, where they break down the last part of the declaration. Sim is referencing in this audio, Rashid Khalidi's book, The Hundred Years War on Palestine, a history of settler colonialism and resistance, 1917 to 2017.
5: It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine, or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. That last bit sounds like, all right, well, he's saying, like, we're not going to tread on the civil and religious rights of Palestinians. That's pretty good, right? But in The Hundred Years' War on Palestine, the book by Rashid Khalidi that I'm encouraging you all to keep reading along with me this week, Khalidi does a great job breaking down the rhetoric of this declaration and why it was actually a declaration of war upon the Palestinian people. Yes, they were promised civil and religious rights, but they were not granted political or national rights. And this meant that for the next 15 years, as people in Palestine tried to resist the establishment of a Zionist state within their country, the takeover of all their land by Zionist groups, they were unable to find any audience in the halls of power because Balfour had declared them to not have these rights and to not really be people. They weren't even referred to as Arabs or Palestinians in the declaration, just non-Jewish. 94% of the people of this land had just been written out of existence as far as the Western powers were concerned. Khalidi describes how between 1917 and 1936, almost all of the organized Palestinian resistance to Zionism was peaceful and legalistic. They would form political committees, but the British said, you're not allowed to have political activity, and shut those down harshly. They would send delegations to the League of Nations, to other countries, to try to get to support, to Britain, but they would not even be seen in the halls of power. They would not even get audiences because they were told, basically, as Palestinians, you have no rights. You are not allowed to have nationalistic interests.
4: As I mentioned, the declaration was included in the terms of the British mandate for Palestine. The so-called mandate system, set up by the Allied powers, was a thinly veiled form of colonialism and occupation. In retrospect, of course, it's not a very thin veil at all. The mandate system transferred rule from the territories that were previously controlled by the powers defeated in the war, Germany, Austria-Hungary, the Ottoman Empire, and Bulgaria, to those who were victorious in the war. The declared aim of the mandate system was to allow the winners of the war to administer the newly emerging states until they could become independent. The case of Palestine, however, was unique. Unlike the rest of the post-war mandates, the main goal of the British mandate there was to create the conditions for the establishment of a Jewish national home, even though Jews, again, at the time, constituted only 6% of the population. Upon the start of the mandate, the British began to facilitate the immigration of European Jews to Palestine. Between 1922 and 1935, the Jewish population rose to nearly 27% of the total population. And even though the Balfour Declaration included the caveat that, quote, nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of the existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine— the British Mandate was set up in a way to equip Jews with the tools to establish self-rule at the expense of the Palestinian Arabs. Understandably enough, the document is seen as controversial for several reasons. First, it was, in the words of the late Palestinian-American academic Edward Said, quote, made by a European power about a non-European territory in a flat disregard of both the presence and wishes of the native majority resident in that territory. In essence, the Balfour Declaration promised Jews a land where the natives made up more than 90% of the population. Second, the Declaration was one of three conflicting wartime promises made by the British. Surprise, surprise. When the Declaration was released, Britain had already promised the Arabs independence from the Ottoman Empire in the 1915 Hussein McMahon Correspondence. However, the British also promised the French, in a separate treaty known as the 1916 Sykes-Picot Agreement, that the majority of Palestine would be under international administration, while the rest of the region would be split between the two colonial powers after the war. This Hussein McMahon correspondence was a series of letters exchanged in 1915-1916 to 1916 during World War I between Hussein ibn Ali, who was the emir of Mecca, and Sir Henry McMahon, the British high commissioner in Egypt. In general terms the correspondence effectively traded british support of an independent arab state for the arab assistance in opposing the ottoman empire however the correspondence was later contradicted by two things the incompatible terms of the saxe picot agreement which was secretly concluded between britain and france in may 1916 and britain's balfour declaration in 1917. the declaration however meant that palestine would come under british occupation that the Palestinian Arabs who lived there would not gain independence. Third, the declaration introduced a notion that was reportedly unprecedented in international law, that of a, quote, national home. The use of the vague term national home for the Jewish people as opposed to state left the meaning open to interpretation. Earlier drafts of the document used the phrase, quote, the reconstitution of Palestine as a Jewish state, but that was later changed. However, in a meeting with Zionist leader Haim Wiseman in 1922, Arthur Balfour and then Prime Minister David Lloyd George reportedly said that the Balfour Declaration was quote always meant to be an eventual Jewish state. Okay, let's take our first break here because I have to. Okay, Bye. And we're back. So we're talking about the Balfour Declaration, but who exactly is Arthur Balfour? Sim Kern, in that same video that I played earlier, explains that he can be seen as the person most responsible for violence in the Middle East for the past century. Because when he wrote his declaration in 1917, he effectively wrote Palestinian rights out of existence. And surprising no one, Arthur Balfour was a terrible guy. He was a white supremacist, a racist, and an anti-Semite. The Balfour Declaration is a statement that can fit into two tweets. As we mentioned, Arthur Balfour, the British foreign secretary at the time, announced that the British government would support establishing a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine. And more than 100 years later, those written words continue to define the dynamic between Israelis and Palestinians. In 2017, marking 100 years since the declaration, little bitch Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu went to London to commemorate the centennial occasion with Theresa May. I hope you know by now, though, that the Declaration is really nothing worth celebrating. And though he may be most known for aiding the Zionist cause in 1917, it's crucial to remember that Arthur Balfour was a white supremacist. He made that much clear in his own words. In 1906, the British House of Commons was engaged in a debate about the Native Blacks in South Africa. Nearly all the members of parliament agreed that the disenfranchisement of the blacks was evil, but not Balfour, who, almost alone, argued against it. When talking about the black people in South Africa, he said, We have to face the facts. Men are not born equal. The white and the black races are not born with equal capacities. They are born with different capacities, which education cannot and will not change. But Balfour's troubling views were not limited to Africa. In fact, despite his now iconic support for Zionism that's celebrated by Zionists everywhere, he was not exactly a friend to the Jews. In the late 19th century, pogroms targeting Jews in the Pale of Settlement had led to waves of Jewish flight westward to England and the United States. Little insert here that the Pale of Settlement was a western region of the Russian Empire with varying borders that existed from 1791 to 1917, in which permanent residency by Jews was allowed and beyond which Jewish residency, permanent or temporary, was mostly forbidden. So created by imperial decree, the Jewish Pale of Settlement was that part of the Russian Empire within which... Russia's Jewish population was required to live and work for more than 130 years between the late 18th and the early 20th century. Although it was initially intended to forestall commerce between Jews and the general population of Russia, the restrictions imposed by the Pale fostered the development of a distinctive religious and ethnic culture in an area covering roughly 386,000 square miles, or 1 million square kilometers, between the Baltic and Black Seas. The word pale, as used in this sense, comes from the Latin polis or stake, one that might be used to indicate a boundary. A pale is thus a district separated from the surrounding country. It may be defined by physical boundaries or it may be distinguished by a different administrative or legal system. The Jewish pale of settlement was both a defined area within the Russian empire and a legal entity regulated by laws that did not apply to the Russian empire as a whole. So back to the main narrative, the targeting of Jews in the Pale of Settlement led to immigration of many Jews to the West, to England and the U.S. This influx of refugees led to an increase in British anti-immigrant racism and outright anti-Semitism, themes not unfamiliar to us today. Support for political action against immigrants grew as the English public demanded immigration control to keep certain immigrants, particularly Jews, out of the country. So, this scared and xenophobic public found a sympathetic ear in Balfour. In 1905, while serving as prime minister, Balfour presided over the passage of the Aliens Act. This legislation put the first restrictions on immigration into Great Britain, and it was primarily aimed at restricting Jewish immigration. According to historians, Balfour had personally delivered passionate speeches about the imperative to restrict the waves of Jews fleeing the Russian Empire from entering Britain. So maybe it's not as astonishing as you would think that Balfour, whose support of the Zionist cause has made him a hero among Zionists, would have implemented anti-Jewish laws. But the truth is, his support of Zionism stemmed from the exact same source as his desire to limit Jewish immigration to Britain. Both of these things can be traced back to his white supremacist beliefs. Balfour lived in an area of stirring nationalism, highly defined by ethno-religious identity. Because of these sentiments, the early 20th century was a time when seemingly liberal Western nations struggled with the challenge of incorporating Jewish citizens. Balfour wanted to keep the UK as a white Christian ethnostate. What the Zionists provided Balfour with was a solution to the challenges Jewish citizens posed to his ethno-nationalist vision, a solution that didn't force him to reckon with them. Instead of insisting that societies accept all citizens as equals, regardless of racial or religious background, the Zionist movement offered a different answer, separation. Balfour saw in Zionism not just a blessing for Jews, but for the West as well, In 1919, he wrote the introduction to Nahim Sokolow's History of Zionism. In this introduction, Balfour wrote that the Zionist movement would, quote, mitigate the age-long miseries created for Western civilization by the presence in its midst of a body which it too long regarded as alien and even hostile, but which it was equally unable to expel or to absorb. By both giving Jews a place to go and a place to leave, Zionism seemingly solved two problems at once, in Balfour's mind. In other words, his support of Zionism was motivated by his desire to protect Britain from the negative effects, or the miseries, as he said, of having Jews in its population. Rather than protecting the rights of one of its minorities, Britain could simply export them, or at least not import any more. This is one of the many reasons Zionism itself is anti-Semitic. We can even fast forward to now and see how Zionists are telling anti-Zionist Jewish people that they're no longer Jewish for supporting Palestine. That belief and statement in itself is extremely anti-Semitic. Criticizing Israel and the Israeli government, however, is not. But putting that aside, we can see that from the very beginning, even in its origin, Zionists associated and allied themselves with the worst kinds of people, Like people who believed that Jewish people are, quote, an alien and hostile body among them. Needless to say, Balfour's view of Zionism is steeped in the same kind of white supremacy as Balfour's view of South Africa's blacks. But his support of the Zionist dream had another problem. Rather than solving the problem of how to handle a minority living in a white majority country, the Balfour Declaration just shifted the same problem into a different geography. The tension between ethno-nationalism and equality is definitely and equally present today between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, where the Israeli state rules over the fate of millions of Palestinians who either have no right to vote, are treated as second-class citizens, or are refugees denied repatriation. Today, it is Israel that views Palestinians as demographic threats and sees the quote presence in its midst of a body which is too long regarded as alien and even hostile. which it was equally unable to expel or to absorb let's take our second break here again because i have to so see you later it's just
6: being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a without parent. Only in theaters May 17th.
4: And we are back. So, that Balfour's legacy of supremacy persists as much as British support for Israel does is no accident. We have arrived at this point today because the white supremacist attitudes of Balfour informed policy lending imperial right to a project in pursuit of national self-determination for Jews by trampling on the rights of native non-Jews. Remarkably, Balfour was unabashedly aware of the hypocrisy in his stance. In 1919, he wrote a letter that said this to the British Prime Minister. The weak point of our position, of course, is that in the case of Palestine, we deliberately and rightly declined to accept the principle of self-determination we do not propose even to go through the form of consulting the wishes of the present inhabitants of the country, the 700,000 Arabs who now inhabit that ancient land. Those are his words in a letter that he wrote to the British Prime Minister. So there's no misconstruing that there. Those 700,000 Arabs, of course, made up approximately 90% of the population of Palestine. Again, bears repeating that Jewish people before this declaration was implemented made up only 6% of the population. And therein lies the fundamental problem that continues through this day, more than a hundred years later. Palestinians are denied the right to have rights because from the outset, their views, their human rights, and by extension, their very humanity were consistently seen as inferior to those of others. That was clear in Balfour's perspective and the British Mandate's policy. And it persists in one form or another in many, if not most, of the policies of the Zionist state of Israel through this day. In modern times, as much as in 1917, the battle between ethno-nationalism and equality has risen to the foreground. We saw this in Donald Trump's rise in America and in Theresa May's Brexited Britain. Rather than resolving this tension... Balfour's support for Zionism merely exported it to Palestine. And resisting the legacy of Balfour's racism is absolutely necessary if there is ever to be peace in Palestine and beyond. A little bit more history here about why this declaration was issued. The question of why has been a subject of debate for historians for decades, with historians using different sources to suggest various explanations. Some argue that many in the British government at the time were Zionists themselves. Others say the declaration was issued out of an anti-Semitic reasoning that giving Palestine to the Jews would be a solution to the quote-unquote Jewish problem. In mainstream academia, however, there are a set of reasons over which there is a general consensus. One, control over Palestine was a strategic imperial interest to keep Egypt and the Suez Canal within Britain's sphere of influence. Two, Britain had to side with Zionists to rally support among the Jews in the United States and Russia, hoping they could encourage their governments to stay in the war until victory. Three, there was intense Zionist lobbying and strong connections between the Zionist community in Britain and the British government, as well as some of the officials in the government being Zionists themselves. Four, Jews were being persecuted in Europe and the British government was sympathetic to their suffering. I think that last point is usually used as a validation to why Israel exists today, but uh, feeling sorry for a people and giving them someone else's land is really not a solution, in my opinion. Of course, the Balfour Declaration was also not received well by Palestinians and Arabs. In 1919, then-U.S. President Woodrow Wilson appointed a commission to look into public opinion on the mandatory system in Syria and Palestine. The investigation was known as the King Crane Commission. It found that the majority of Palestinians expressed a strong opposition to Zionism, leading the conductors of the commission to advise a modification of the mandate's goal. The late Ani Abu al-Hadi, a Palestinian political figure, condemned the Balfour Declaration in his memoirs, saying it was made by an English foreigner who had no claim to Palestine to a foreign Jew who had no right to it. However, It's very important to mention here that the other vital, important source for insight into Palestinian opinion on the declaration at the time, aka the press, was closed down by the Ottomans at the start of the war in 1914 and only began to reappear in 1919, but it was under British military censorship. In November 1919, when the al Istiqal al-Arabi, the Arab independence newspaper based in Damascus, was reopened, one article had a response to a public speech given by Herbert Samuel, a Jewish cabinet minister in London, on the second anniversary of the Balfour Declaration. The article said, quote, Our country is Arab, Palestine is Arab, and Palestine must remain Arab. In 1920, the Third Palestinian Congress in Haifa decried the British government's plans to support the Zionist project and rejected the declaration as a violation of international law and the rights of the indigenous population. I'm gonna pull audio from Sim's video here again. They kind of summarize in a really good way what happened in the years leading up to the Nakba. So here is Sim.
5: And even still until 1936, Palestinians are trying to peacefully, legalistically resist decolonization, which unfortunately history teaches us doesn't work that great usually. However, inspired by the examples of Iraq and Syria, which had managed to overthrow their colonizers, starting with a general strike, Palestinians organized a strike in 1936. Again, this starts out as just a peaceful strike, but it is brutally repressed by the British overlords. We're like, no, you're not allowed to strike. You are our captive wage slavery labor force. You have to go do your work. Khalidi shows how Britain was also very strategically sowing internal divisions within the Palestinian leadership, turning people certain to their side by bribing them to work against one another. And so the strike fell apart in 1936, but then only then in 1937 did an armed revolt break out. Much is made by Zionists about this Arab revolt and how this was justification for the Nakba, which would ultimately kill 15,000 Palestinians and displace hundreds of thousands more. But this was no religious massacre, and that's reflected in the casualties. Yes, several hundred Jews died during the revolt, but there, it took 100,000 British troops to suppress the revolt, and it, the fighting was mostly between the Arabs and the British. And it's estimated that between 14 and 17 percent of the adult male Arab population was killed, wounded, imprisoned, or exiled. So the population of Palestinians was absolutely devastated by this revolt by the end of it. What struck me a lot reading the conclusion of this chapter was, you know, the Western media, which is so Islamophobic, portrays Palestinians as like inherently violent and bloodthirsty and anti-Semitic, but that just isn't reflected in this history at all. In fact, as Khalidi mentioned, several scholars argue that, you know, the Palestinians really should have organized an armed revolt earlier. It was too late by the time they did, but they had spent 15 years since the Balfour Declaration trying peacefully and legalistically to earn their rights, and that was ultimately a dead end. But Palestinians really clearly did not want to fight a war. It wasn't until they'd exhausted every single other option to them. They tried legal routes. They tried organizing. They tried a strike. You know, they had done everything they could. And this was a population that had been stripped of huge amounts of its land that was destitute, that was impoverished, that was starving, that was shut out from any economic opportunity in the land they had lived on for millennia. They were farmers. They didn't want to wage a war. They wanted to make olive oil. But because this guy didn't want Jews moving to the UK, they didn't get to have their country anymore.
4: Even prior to the Balfour Declaration and the British Mandate, pan-Arab newspapers warned against the motives of the Zionist movement and its potential outcomes in displacing Palestinians from their land. Khalil Sakakini, A Jerusalemite writer and teacher described Palestine in the immediate aftermath of the war as follows A nation which has long been in the depths of sleep only wakes if it is rudely shaken by events, only arises little by little. This was the situation of Palestine, which for many centuries has been in the deepest sleep until it was shaken by the Great War, shocked by the Zionist movement, and violated by the illegal policy of the British, and it awoke little by little. And while Britain is generally and understandably held responsible for the Balfour Declaration, it is important to note that the statement would not have been made without prior approval from the other Allied powers during World War I. In a war cabinet meeting on September 1917, British ministers decided that the, quote, views of President Wilson should be obtained before any declaration was made. And, indeed, according to the cabinet's minutes on October 4th, the ministers recalled Arthur Balfour confirming that Wilson was, quote, extremely favorable to the movement. France, surprise, surprise, maybe to no one, was also involved and announced its support prior to the issuing of the Balfour Declaration. A May 1917 letter from Jules Cambon, a French diplomat, to Nahum Sokolow, the Polish Zionist, expressed the sympathetic views of the French government towards a, quote, Jewish colonization in Palestine. This letter, again, the precursor to the Balfour Declaration, says, It would be a deed of justice and of reparation to assist by the protection of the Allied powers in the renaissance of the Jewish nationality in that land from which the people of Israel were exiled so many centuries ago. The Balfour Declaration, again, is widely seen as the precursor to the 1948 Palestinian Nekbah, when Zionist armed groups who were trained by the British forcibly expelled more than 750,000 Palestinians from their homeland and they massacred 15,000 Palestinians. Despite some opposition within the war cabinet predicting such an outcome was probable, the British government still chose to issue the declaration. And there is no doubt that the British mandate created the conditions for the Jewish minority to gain superiority in Palestine and build a state for themselves at the expense of the Palestinian Arabs. When the British decided to terminate their mandate in 1947 and transfer the question of Palestine to the United Nations, the Jews already had an army that was formed out of the armed paramilitary groups trained and created to fight side by side with the British in World War II. More importantly, the British allowed the Jews to establish self-governing institutions such as the Jewish Agency to prepare themselves for a state when it came to it, while the Palestinians were forbidden from doing so, paving the way for the 1948 ethnic cleansing of Palestine. We're going to end the episode with one more audio clip from Sim's video. I just think it really describes uh, and summarizes why exactly Arthur Balfour is an extremely evil person. So here is Sim.
5: And the violence that has sprung from the creation of Israel goes so much further beyond its borders. I mean, the whole history of the Middle East and of Western imperial conquest in the Middle East hinges on Israel being there. All of U.S. imperialism, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, I mean, all of that would have been impossible without the existence of Israel. So add Arthur Balfour to your list of the greatest war criminals of all time.
4: It truly feels silly to be talking about anything else at this time, so I do want to mention here that at the time of this recording, there are over 11,000 Palestinians who have been murdered by the settler colony of Israel in their genocide that is currently happening. Nearly 5,000 children are gone, have been slaughtered. Every time I open my phone, I see the worst thing I've ever seen in my life, and there are images that we're seeing of, of I mean, you've seen them, children under under the rubble, crying for help, parents losing their babies. And it, it doesn't make sense for me to describe the images. But my point is, we have never seen a genocide take place right before our eyes. All the proof is there. Israeli leaders have been very clear in their intention for genocide. Just for example, Israeli cabinet member Avi Dikter, I don't care if I said his name wrong, but he said that they are rolling out Nekbah 2023. That's one example of extremely genocidal language that's being used by not just Israel, but also American politicians as well. There are photos side by side of the 1948 Nekbah to what's happening right now. It's happening again. The mass expulsion of Palestinians is happening right before our eyes. There are Palestinians who have experienced the Nakba in 1948 who are experiencing it again. Being displaced so many times in their own country. And right now, over a million Palestinians have been displaced. We are also just being inundated with the most bizarre propaganda from the IOF. I've decided to call them the IOF from now on instead of the IDF because they are not defending anything. They are the Israeli offensive forces, not defensive. So just a disclaimer there over my choice of words. But it's strange. They post photos of Arabic text saying it's something else. Just recently, I saw that they posted a calendar that they found in a house that they say are a list of Hamas hostages. It's literally just a calendar with the words of the week written in Arabic. And that is just One example of many, and I feel like if I keep talking about this, I will never stop. But my point in bringing us back to modern times is that this all started with a decision made by men who had no business making a decision. Arthur Balfour had no fucking business handing over a piece of land that had nothing to do with him, it was never his place. In what galaxy does that make sense to anybody? zionism and jewishness and judaism are not equivalent and i hope at this point in time people are realizing that i hope that this episode sheds some light on how the roots of zionism itself are rooted in anti-semitism it's nobody's place to decide to play god and just pretend people don't exist in a place that you want it doesn't work like that that's not human So, I think it's important to remember history like this because something like this does not happen overnight. It did not happen or start on October 7th. This is something that has been decades in the making, and it all started with one stupid man making a decision with other stupid men that have way too much power that resulted in the suffering, the continued suffering of an entire people, the dehumanization of an entire people. We're seeing it play out right now. So I think as you learn about history, as you learn about things like this that maybe seem like they happened so far away, they really didn't. We are experiencing the ripples of those decisions. And that's the episode for today. I hope it was informative and I hope the genocide of the Palestinian people comes to an end. So in the meantime, free Palestine.
2: Right Rug Flooring.